0: From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Tuesday, February 27th. With us now, the journalist Steve Call, C-O-L-L, one of the most knowledgeable people anywhere about America's tortured relationship with the Middle East. After 9-11, he won a Pulitzer Prize for his book, Ghost Wars, The Secret History of the CIA, Afghanistan, and Bin Laden from the Soviet invasion to September 10th, 2001. He wrote another book called The Bin Ladens, An Arabian Family in the American Century, and one called Private Empire, ExxonMobil, and American Power, among other books. Steve was The Washington Post's first international investigative correspondent based in London. He's also been managing editor of The Washington Post, dean of the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, president of the New America Foundation think tank, and a New Yorker staff writer. He recently joined The Economist as a senior editor, and now with America's relationship with the Middle East, again, a central issue, he has a new book called The Achilles Trap. Saddam Hussein, the CIA, and the Origins of America's Invasion of Iraq. He also had a New Yorker article in December called A Ruinous War and Peacemaking in Gaza. So let's see what what we can learn about how the history in his new book perhaps informs the current crisis. Steve, I always learn things reading your work, and when you come on the show, welcome back to WNYC.
1: Thank you, Brian. It's great to be back.
0: Just to set the stage about the book first, what does the title mean? The Achilles Trap
1: Well, it refers to the deep um, misunderstandings of between Saddam Hussein and the United States that unfolded between when Saddam first came to power in one thousand nine hundred and seventy nine and the invasion that the u s led in two thousand and three. That particular phrase reflects the fact that both Saddam and the United States used the Achilles heel metaphor to explain why their enemy was vulnerable, when in fact, both of them had kind of mistaken ideas about their enemy. Um, But the, the real kind of starting point for the book, the reason that I spent four years working on it was that in thinking back on the catastrophic invasion and the war that followed, I mean, our kind of reckoning has been located understandably in U.S. decision-making. So George W. Bush's choices, the manipulated intelligence, the false intelligence, the media's complicity. But there's another set of questions about where this war came from that have hardly ever been examined. And essentially, they boil down to why did Saddam Hussein sacrifice his own long reign and power, ultimately his own life, for the sake of weapons that he didn't possess? Why did that happen? And it turns out that this question was answerable because Saddam Hussein tape recorded his leadership conversations uh, over many, many years. And he left an extraordinary archive of records that sadly is not publicly available. But with the help of the reporter 's Committee for Freedom of the press, I sued, got a big batch of them, and anyway, that is the investigation that this book uh, seeks you know seeks to deliver, which is essentially the other side of the story of where this war came from
0: yeah, and so we 'll talk about Saddam uh, through his perspective and where he went wrong to draw this ruinous war on his country uh, and there are lessons from even that for today. Uh, But yeah, you sued the Pentagon. I just want people to know that. You sued the Pentagon to get access to these countless hours of what you call the Saddam tapes. And these were actually tape recordings that the Iraqi dictator made of himself like the Nixon tapes when Richard Nixon was president of the United States in the White House?
1: Yes. I mean, generally, the setting wasn't quite as intimate as the Oval Office, but they were recordings of meetings that he had with his Comrades, sometimes five or six people in the room, sometimes a, his full cabinet. But yes, his leadership groups that he um, debated issues. I mean, debate—it was a dictatorship. Um, hmm. Hardly anyone ever interrupted him. But he—he he talked a lot, and he—he he was, in the end, I discovered, um, you know, he had charisma, and he was uh, with people who didn't threaten him. He could be relatively easy to be around.
0: In Arabic, I presume these tapes, right? Yeah,
1: they were—they were in Arabic, and. They were captured by the United States um, after the invasion, and they were initially uh, transported to Qatar, where they were kept in a warehouse, and they were translated for whether or not there was any information in them, like, where's the WMD, that sort of thing. And once the U.S. realized that there was no current intelligence value in the tapes, they began to archive them. And some years later, they released some of them to a research facility that journalists and scholars could access. That lasted for a few years, and then they pulled them back and withdrew them from the public, and they haven't been available since about 2015. So that was why, um, with the help of the Reporters Committee, I had to sue under FOIA to, um, to get a big chunk of them.
0: You described the U.S. relationship with Saddam during the Iran-Iraq war. Washington was mostly on his side, right?
1: Yeah. And the, the Reagan administration was monitoring the war after it sort of bogged down. And in 1982, they became frightened that Iran was going to break through Iraqi lines and go straight into Baghdad and overthrow Saddam. Now, at this point, Ayatollah Khomeini was firmly in charge. We'd had the hostage crisis and the clerical regime in Tehran was you know, making a living out of death to America. And so there was, there was a fear that if Iran won the war, overthrew Saddam, and took control of Iraq, that an already threatening revolution would only become larger and more powerful. And so, there's, this is like the beginning of one of the early chapters of the book. Right. A CIA officer is dispatched in a private jet belonging to the King of Jordan into Baghdad more or less unannounced, and he brings with him satellite photographs of the battle lines that only the United States can generate in those days, because we had kind of a monopoly on eye-in-the-sky technologies. And he brings them into Saddam's regime, and he says, look, we're here to help you not lose this war. I know you don't like us. You know, we have our doubts about you, but we have a mutual interest, which is we want you To stand firm against Ayatollah. And for you to do that, you got to look at these pictures. These guys are about to come through and get you. And so Mm. a relationship began then and lasted right through the 80s based on the US providing secret intelligence to Saddam to help him uh, prosecute his war against Iran and uh, denying all the time. We denied all the time that we were doing any such thing.
0: But we did it because the United States saw Iran as the bigger threat. But as you recount in the book, the U.S. was also playing a kind of double game. Is that fair to say?
1: It is. And in fact, um, Saddam was always suspicious of these gifts that the CIA was bringing him. He would say, we can see now on his tapes, he would say to his advisors, you know, I don't trust these guys. And I'll bet you that either these photographs are doctored somehow to cause us disadvantage or they're delivering the same photographs to the Iranians and he started to get wind of evidence that the Iranians were acquiring spare parts and military supplies that the Israelis were involved and he starts talking about it with his comrades and he sounds like he's a little paranoid. well then in November 1986, as listeners of a certain age will recall, the then Attorney General Edward Meese, Edmund Meese, one of those, held a press conference in which he essentially announced the Iran Contra scandal, the essence of which on its Iran side was that the Reagan administration had decided to secretly join with Israel to sell military equipment to Iran so that they could succeed against Iraq, playing exactly the double game that Saddam suspected. And there are these amazing tapes right after that scandal is revealed where Saddam is saying to his comrades, See, he's the least surprised leader in the world. Everybody else is shocked by this. He's like, I told you this was going on. I told you this was the way the world works. And uh, in his um, deeply felt anti-Semitism and racism towards Jews and the state of Israel, he starts just ranting on on one of these tapes, you know, Zionism, my comrades. How many times do I have to tell you that's what controls the world? And anyway, um, that revelation undid all of the efforts to sort of stabilize the relationship between the. US and Saddam that had been undertaken uh, starting in 82 and it's interesting on the tapes many years later when everybody else is more or less forgotten about iran-contra when Saddam is trying to explain his hostility toward the United States to his colleagues he he refers back to it he says you know that conspiracy that was revealed, that I predicted and that I told you uh, would uh, was, was embedded in our relationship with the Americans, it's still going on. That conspiracy mm-hmm. will never rest. And that shaped his view of the United States right up until the invasion.
0: So on the Iran portion of the Iran-Contra scandal, did President Reagan just want those two hostile to the United States countries, Iran and Iraq, to destroy each other's international strength as much as possible, so he funded both.
1: Well, S- uh, Saddam certainly thought so, and uh, Henry Kissinger gave him reason to entertain that idea by quipping at some circumstance or another uh, around the time that CIA was just opening its liaison with Saddam that it was a shame that both sides couldn't lose the war, and Saddam and his, especially after Iran Contra was revealed. Uh, He continued to accept aid from the United States for a couple more years. Um, And there are these scenes where U.S. intelligence officers would meet with their Iraqi counterparts. And the Iraqis would open the meeting by saying, so your, your colleague is in Tehran right now sharing these same photographs with them, right? And that was the tenor of the suspicion. Somehow the material was good enough and confirmable and reliable enough that the Iraqis continued to want it. But this, um, so in fact, Iran Contra was a one off harebrained failure in Reagan foreign policy. It was a scheme to release hostages and perhaps build relations with non existent moderates in the Khomeini regime. But the idea that the United States was capable of such incompetence, would never have occurred to Saddam. To him, it was all part of a big master plan that was all aimed at him.
0: As you describe in the book, one would have thought that George H.W. Bush would be the most qualified possible president to deal smartly with Saddam Hussein. Bush had been Reagan's vice president for eight years. He had been UN ambassador. He had been the CIA director, for heaven's sakes. But did we have two generations of President George Bush's who thought they knew Saddam Hussein's brain but really didn't?
1: <laughs> uh, it's a, yeah, it's a nice way to ask the question. I, look, I mean, George H.W. Bush was a highly qualified foreign policy president. When you watch him doing his job with Saddam in the run-up to Kuwait, I mean, you sort of feel—I uh, felt a little sorry for him because— He was doing what you sort of want your president to do. He was picking up the phone and talking to everybody who knew Saddam and asking them how he should interpret what Saddam was doing. And part of the problem was he got just really bad advice from King Hussein of Jordan, from Hosni Mubarak um, in Egypt, from King Fahd in Saudi Arabia. Everybody who really lived with Saddam, who were threatened by Saddam and who were trying to interpret his bluff, they all told Bush, don't worry about it. We got this. It's just a show. The Kuwaitis are going to pay him off. Nothing is going to happen. And every time Bush would say, are you sure? (laughs) Like maybe Mm. we should do some military exercises. They'd say, really, George, we've got this. And uh, you you want your presidents to take advice from allies and regional experts, but in this case, they had it all wrong. It cost them um, as much as it cost the Americans eventually.
0: And so jumping ahead to the second Iraq war, would it be accurate to say that one thing you learned from the tapes was that Saddam never thought the United States would invade in 2003, despite everything that George W. Bush said and did to prepare for a war?
1: Yeah, that was part of his Achilles' trap Metaphor was that he believed, um, based on his experience during the '90s, that the United States was never going to take the risks to its own soldiers, to its own population, by invading on the ground. He had been, you know, targeted with cruise missile strikes, periodic bombings, all very precise and calibrated. And so he had concluded that the United States was casualty-averse and that it had an Achilles' heel, as he said in a speech which was that it, it just wasn't as muscular as it appeared to be. And there was another factor leading up to 2003. The period between 9-11 and 2003 is absolutely fascinating, and the, and the new materials, um, are, you know, I found them. I, of course, I'm very excitable about this stuff, but I found <laughs> them absolutely stunning. He had, He was in his 60s now, and he was no longer the person that he had been in 1990 or 1980, he had become obsessed with novel writing. He was spending many hours a day handwriting his four novels, and he had kind of lost interest in military affairs. Between that and his complacency that the Americans would never come in on the ground, he was very... And he also became, you know, sort of an annoying pundit after 9-11, just bloviating all of the time about America and got what it deserved and so on, completely oblivious to the idea that he was vulnerable to the aftermath of 9-11. And, of course, he was innocent of ties with al-Qaeda. So when those accusations came, he was, he was just nonplussed by them. And visitors would come through and he'd say, I, you know, of course they're saying this stuff because they're always out to get me, but they're not going to invade and he was very late to recognize that uh George W Bush was in fact uh in, intended to invade and 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 that he wasn't afraid of the potential um casualties that the invading force would incur
0: so you also wrote an article in the new yorker in december about how temporary ceasefires don't end wars because they don't resolve underlying issues. According to the news this morning, we may be on the verge of another temporary ceasefire in Gaza. Does your deep knowledge of the region from decades of reporting suggest to you how this might actually resolve?
1: <sighs> um, yeah, I. that um, finding was a political science finding, a study of hundreds of civil conflicts in the last 20 years, and these you know, political scientists demonstrated, I think, pretty convincingly that temporary ceasefires and prisoner exchanges don't correlate with the end of conflicts because they don't resolve the underlying issues. So if you apply that to Israel and Gaza, um, the underlying issues are about territory, Palestinian sovereignty, um, the history, the search for justice by Palestinians, the search for security by Israelis, Big subjects that have been, um, you know, at the center of international attention for decades and are still unresolved. So, what's different this time, and the reason I took a deep sigh when I realized the depth of your question, is that these circumstances, both in Israel and in Gaza, are without precedent. So, how, um, you know, how the search for a Palestinian state can be pursued? In the aftermath of this devastating war, um, it's just unclear to me. I think there was a period in the fall where there was a lot of sort of easy, kind of clarity or optimism among professional diplomats, and you want peacemakers to do their work, and they only have so much to work with here. But it was well, we're going to we're going to find a way out of this through a two-state solution that is. Reinforced by Saudi recognition of Israel and a new deal between the US and Saudi Arabia, and somehow Gaza will be reconstructed and reimagined through that and so on. In the abstract, on paper, it all makes sense, but in the reality of what's happened both inside Israel to Israeli politics, to the settler movement, and to the Palestinian population in Gaza, now literally decimated. Mm-hmm. Um, 10th of the pre-war population or more dead um, to construct such an abstract formula just seems like it's just unrealistic so i i this time around i would tend to say that a ceasefire a prolonged ceasefire um a an end to violence is necessary not because it's going to lead to a permanent solution but because Um, Something has to change, and it can't change until the violence
0: stops. Well, Biden is certainly rolling the dice on his scenario, as it's been reported, that this temporary ceasefire, maybe because both sides are exhausted, I don't know, um, will lead to a grand bargain that includes a Palestinian state and other Arab states getting involved in helping um, to create a peace and enforce a peace. It is so complicated. But, you know, an article in Vox recently said, and this kind of relates back to your book, that this war may become an even bigger history-defining event for the Middle East and the U.S. relationship with it than the Iraq War, a real era-defining event, considering the massive Gaza death toll and destruction of the territory. Having just written a book on the Iraq War, can you compare and contrast from a sort of regional, but also U.S. relationship standpoint?
1: I mean, I think they are both uh, huge convulsions in the course of American foreign policy and in the course of the Middle East. Um, The difference, obviously, uh, is that in Iraq, we sent soldiers into harm's way. They became entangled in an impossible um, insurgency. We lost thousands of lives, several thousand lives, and then, you know, 20,000 wounded in coming home with traumatic brain injury and lost limbs, returning to communities. And I think changing American politics, I think the Iraq war changed American politics because our voluntary army um, saw the, the hubris and the, and the errors of their elites and came back to America and and developed a politics of anger and and change that we've been living with uh, gradually since you know 2016. So I I think that impact is distinct for the United States. Um, God willing, we won't be going to war over um, the current conflict. But I think for Israel and for Palestine the war is at least as disruptive as the Iraq war was for for us.
0: Steve Call's new book is The Achilles Trap, Saddam Hussein, the CIA, and the Origins of America's Invasion of Iraq. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing it with us, Steve. I really appreciate it.
1: Brian, thanks so much for having me.